0: Back to read and succeed. I'm your host Dave Campbell here on your community radio station one hundred six point five FM WFMPLP Louisville. Special episode today: twenty six poet Lord of Kentucky, Doctor Frank X Walker, joins the show to discuss his York poetry and connections to Louisville two centuries later. Stay tuned.
1: Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate, Forward Radio, 106.5 FM, WFMP-LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive national and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much.
0: Welcome to a special episode of Read and Succeed. Less than 48 hours after the September 23rd Brianna Taylor verdict here in Louisville, I was privileged to have a conversation with 26th Poet Laureate of Kentucky, Dr. Frank X Walker, discussing his thoughts on current developments and unrest in Louisville and nationally and internationally. The foundation for our dialogue were Dr. Walker's York series of poems, Buffalo Dance, The Journey of York, and When Winter Come, The Ascension of York, published in 2004 and 2008 respectively by the University Press of Kentucky. Both altogether breathtaking persona poetry retellings of the narrative of the 1804-1806 to 1806 Lewis and Clark expedition from the perspective of Captain William Clark's enslaved black manservant, York. We had an absolutely superb conversation about life and letters, narratives and counter-narratives, politics and prose and poetry, black America and white America, and ultimately a conversation about man's quest towards his most simultaneously abstract and absolute goal, the truth. We've heard so much in 2020 AD in Kentucky and nationwide from professional analysts, and I am honored to share thoughts on 2020 AD in Kentucky and nationwide from a professional artist, and a distinguished professional poet, no less. Please visit us at readandsucceed.net and our social media sites. Visit forwardradio.org to donate to community radio. Visit Professor X at frankxwalker.com. And enjoy this interview.
1: This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest on Read and Succeed is Dr. Frank X. Walker. A native of Danville, Kentucky, Frank X. Walker is the first African American writer to be named Kentucky Poet Laureate. Walker has published 10 collections of poetry, including Last Will, Last Testament, winner of the 2002 Judy Gaines Young Book Award. Turn Me Loose, The Unghosting of Medgar Evers, which was awarded the 2014 NAACP Image Award for Poetry and the Black Caucus American Library Association Honor Award for Poetry. He is also the author of Buffalo Dance, The Journey of York, winner of the 2004 Lillian Smith Book Award, a book we will be talking about today on Read and Succeed, and Isaac Murphy, I Dedicate This Ride, which he adapted for stage, earning him the Paul Green Foundation Playwrights Fellowship Award. His poetry was also dramatized for the Contemporary American Theater Festival and staged by Message Theater. Voted one of the most creative professors in the South, Walker coined the term Afrolation and co-founded the Afrolation Poets, subsequently publishing the much celebrated eponymous collection. His honors also include a 2004 Landon Literary Fellowship for Poetry, 2008 and 2009 Denny C. Plattner Award for Outstanding Poetry in Appalachian Heritage, the 2013 West Virginia Humanities Council's Appalachian Heritage Award, 2020 Donald Justice Poetry Award, as well as fellowships and residences at Cave Canem, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Kentucky Arts Council. The recipient of honorary doctorates from University of Kentucky, Transylvania University, Spalding University, and Center College, Walker is the founding editor of Pluck, the journal of Afro-Latian arts and culture. Professor of English and Afro-Latian American and Africana studies, and director of the Creative Writing Program at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Professor X, welcome to Read and Succeed. We're honored to have you here.
2: As honored to be here.
0: Thank you. Well, typically, for those that listen to Read and Succeed, we'd start off with questions about the guest and author's journey to letters and literature, and then the issues that are related to those letters and literature. I know that this is being broadcast on a different day in Louisville, but today is September 25th, 2020. We are almost exactly 48 hours out from the verdict from the Kentucky Attorney General's office on the Breonna Taylor case here in Louisville. I myself am sitting about a mile away from the epicenter of most of that unrest. Like I said, we would typically talk about the books first and then we'll move into the issues, but I think that the gravity of what is going on in Louisville and the gravity of what is going on nationwide and internationally. Breonna Taylor is now an international term. There are people who are protesting in London over issues related to Breonna Taylor. Louisville is the center of everyone's attention right now, and in particular, the racial issues that we're dealing with that are reflected in the two collections of poetry about a black Louisvilleian that we will be talking about today. So I want to first start off for our listeners and ask Professor X, what are your thoughts on the last 48 hours in Louisville, Kentucky, and national history?
2: You know, it's still, I'm still making my way through the traditional grieving process. I mean, it's, the result was not unexpected. But the degree to which the final results said Black women's life don't matter is like a death to me as a product of Black women. You know, I have daughters, I'm married to a Black woman. And to only find guilt in the policeman who didn't shoot her and you make a determination that her death, her death was justified, not only does it hurt, it just this opens up a, a wound that rarely even gets a chance to close before the next injury happens in America as a black man, woman or child. But at the same time, there are so many questions, I think, that are still unresolved because we don't know what evidence was presented to the grand jury. We know that there was a conscious decision not to explore the search warrants validity. And for whatever reason, there were 12 individuals who testified that they did not hear them announce the search warrant, but somehow they found somebody, a single witness who said they did hear it executed. And to present that as if there was only one witness against 12 sounds a little egregious to me. So there are enough holes in the whole story beyond the fact that George Walker was charged with attempted murder of a policeman and other offenses and then released immediately and had the charges dropped in less than 48 hours, which meant that clearly that he had the right to defend himself. But then the claim that the shooting was justified because the police were defending themselves. It's just crazy to me. I mean, it, it's illogical. It's hurtful. And justice is still undone. And I hope that the FBI's case does a much better job, if nothing else, at being transparent than what we've already heard from a mouth we cannot trust. We assume that, Our attorney general is an extension of Mitch McConnell, who is an extension of President Trump, who is an extension of not a friend of black people in this country. So that's a long answer to to how I'm feeling right now.
0: There's a couple of words, and in Reading Succeed, everything we talk about on the show goes back to the power of words and unpacking words and how certain words have different weight when they emanate from different communities, different literary communities. There's three words that you mentioned in what you just said that you hear everywhere in Louisville, particularly in the African American community grief, trust, and justice. Mm-hmm. And I think. And, and like I said, we'll bring this back to the poetry near the end of the episode. But I, we, we, I think in terms of I'm, am speaking in terms of words and letters, which are things that both of our lives are dedicated to. We've got to get to a place in this country, and I don't speak for white America. I am a white American. Anybody can go to the Read and Succeed website, and they can see that. But we have to understand that when these words of grief and justice and trust and I won't even delve into the, the political aspects of it, but just as existentially as your life, going through feeling grief, needing justice, trusting people, they mean different things for white America than they do for non-white America. I think of the nuances. I, I'm i am speaking to the listeners. I think about my relationships with, uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic, actually Roman Catholic, with Protestant Christians, with people who are Mormons. I think about my relationships with friends who are Jews or or Muslims. We can all trade words like salvation, sanctification, God, even Jesus. And for the most part, they mean all the same things, but they also have different meanings from what community that they emerge out of. A Muslim says Jesus, it means a very different thing than when a Christian says Jesus or when a Jew says Jesus. When a Protestant says justification or sanctification, it means something a little different. These are theological terms than when a Catholic says it. And I think that the nation has to come to some understanding that when an African American stands up and says, "I'm seeking justice," that means a very existentially different thing, or I'm grieving over the lack of justice, than it does when a white American stands up and says that the words themselves. I've heard that word "grief" and "justice" so much. I, I'm trying to figure out a solution of, of how. White America can come to, t- and I, I don't think they can, because it's just two different experiences. I think that white America thinks about justice in terms of its transactional. Justice for us, and I say us in broad terms, is the redress of grievances. Somebody stole something from me, I want compensation. If you know, somebody injured a family member or me, I want compensation, or I want that person to be imprisoned. I, I don't think that a lot of white Americans understand when the African American community or people of color stand up and say, we want justice, that is an existential demand that extends centuries back, past, present,
2: and also into the future? Well, I I think it's even more complicated than that because I think about the fact that Daniel Cameron is black. But at his press conference, he seemed pretty confident that what he was sharing was the truth, the truth, as in a singular truth, and presented it as such. I don't personally know any other black person who would agree with his version of the truth right now. And at the same time, and it just could be credited to empathy, the power to, to empathize, but the difference of, with the current movement and what's happening in the streets, it's, it's not black people protesting. It's a multiracial, predominantly under 40 year old, young movement that is not some stereotypical audience that you might see you know a large number of people even arrested in lexington at the recent protests locally we're not black so it's a different movement and it it is it's it's it is a a movement and i think that what makes it different from previous movements is the the diversity of it that is being led by young people which is necessary because you know my generation hasn't made much progress towards the justice that all people deserve but they've been in the streets 117 days in Louisville and we'll stay 117 more until they get something that sounds and looks like justice and I, I admire that I mean I respect that you know that's at almost 60 years old I'm glad there are young warriors out there who have the energy and power and passion to wage that battle. They give me the privilege to wage the battle of words on paper. You know, we have to find out what, how we can contribute to, to progress and, and make this a better place. I wouldn't say white people don't understand the black pain. I would say that the justice system And injustice in general has become so systemic that it's easy for people in charge to just read what the law is and then say the law was broken and then assess a punishment and not feel any personal thing connected to it and not acknowledge how the system has criminalized poverty, addiction, undereducation, unemployment in such a way that they feel justified bringing the hammer down and, and without seeing who's being affected and who isn't being affected so i think the system is unjust but it's not broken it's it's, it's doing exactly what it is designed to do
1: mm. so
2: that's, it has it has to be corrected
0: that's a profound statement i i, I there's so many people who around louisville have said i never expected any other verdict than what came down
2: Right, right. And I guess a final word on that is that, you know, people like to say, well, there's the law and you have to obey the law, that there are rules are in place. But slavery was legal. Yep. It was legal to bar people of color from restaurants and public facilities, to deny them to vote. That was all, you know, it was legal to do so at one point in time. So those things were fixed we have we have other things to fix we're, we're not the law is not serving everybody equally uh clearly and this is just more evidence yep. i mean i think people get it, the whole thing to it of course all lives should matter when people say all lives matter but what happened 48 hours ago in the that all lives don't matter and that's all black lives matter is trying to say yep. is that you know, we, we want some equity. We want the dignity of being treated like human beings and not like something less. And that bears out in every phase of life, healthcare, education, and in this case, most specifically, the justice system. And it, it has routinely, disproportionately disenfranchised people of color. This is the freest country in the world, but it's also the country that imprisons more people than anybody else in the world. So that's, that's a contradiction to me. And you can't sell me a story about American exceptionalism that only mentions all the great things about America and does not include everything else. that makes it less so.
0: Well said. Well said. We'll go to the first Louisvilleian, the first Black louisvillean who would be York. The poetry that we're reviewing today is Professor X's two collections of poetry. One was Buffalo Dance, The Journey of York. It was published in 2004 by the University Press of Kentucky. And When Winter Come, The Ascension of York, the follow-up collection of poetry that was published in 2008. The title that I saw when I was looking at this was Persona Poetry. The idea of poetry told through the perspective of York, who was of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, explore William Clark's manservant. That was the term that was used in those days. However, the reality is, is that William Clark had slaved York. William Clark was a slaveholder. York was his slave. These are painful terms that we use. York went on the Lewis and Clark Expedition that left Louisville, traveled up the Missouri River, traveled over the Rocky Mountains, down the Columbia, to the Pacific Coast between 1804 and 1806 and then returned with them, and returned to his pre-expedition life in Louisville thereafter. The nature of the poetry is telling the experience of York, his journeys, his inner reflections on his role within the expedition, social reflections on the world around him, thinking about his experience as an African-American man with the expedition around him as a type of symbol. It's beautiful poetry for those listening. I highly recommend that everyone read it. And I just had a few questions I wanted to ask Professor X about those poems. But I'll start off with a question about his journey with reading. And I ask this for all of our guests on Read and Succeed. And it is, are you a reader? And when and where did that start?
2: I am most certainly a reader. And it started when I was a child for a couple of reasons. One was at the time... I had five sisters who tortured me mercilessly. And we didn't have a television in our house. So for me, my comic book collection was a was my oasis away from them and a form of entertainment. So I had a whole comic book crate, whole milk crate full of comic books, in addition to books from school that I gathered and collected and could purchase the weekly reader magazines. And of course, whatever was available at the library at the time. I was not allowed to go uptown by myself, but the bookmobile came to our neighborhood, our housing project in Danville every Saturday. And I was always the first person in line when the door opened because I was so enamored by these other worlds and places you could travel through books and the fact that they were free. So all of that made me very excited about learning, about reading, which eventually turned, spilled over to writing. But I've been a reader since before kindergarten and became a more passionate reader probably every year thereafter. You know, that's
0: I think it's always
2: important. All of our guests on Read and Succeed always
0: bring up their library experiences with their public library and their bookmobiles from their youth. And you know, for those listening who have power over funding for the public library systems, we cannot as it was for me, we cannot discount the influence that those institutions have on establishing reading foundations in people. Here, Professor X is 60 years old. I'm going on 40 next February, and we have vivid memories of the bookmobiles of the public libraries and had the excitement that we had when those came around. Those are great influences.
1: This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
0: I've had a few other African-American guests on Read and Succeed, and they were very specific about they wanted to seek out books where the author spoke like them, and some of them, quite frankly, they said they wanted authors that looked like them. Did you ever find yourself going into that process as you progressed as a reader?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think it's a natural, it's a human uh, tendency to want to look in the mirror and get a sense of, of how you and your family stands in the world. I wasn't looking just for people who look like me. I want people who look like my family or as close as possible and the people who lived in my community because I think unconsciously that would have verified that I was part of this bigger world that existed in books. And unfortunately there weren't a lot of books available for me. I remember exhausting the entire collection of African American material in my public library as a, uh, probably about the time I was 14, 13 or 14 years old. And I, I went to the desk and I asked the librarian, why weren't there more books by or about black people? And she, not meaning it in a positive way and not trying to encourage me. She said, why don't you write one? Hmm. Uh, which cut, you know, I remember how, how would that cut, you know, for an adult to respond to me, a kid. Yeah. In that manner. And I, every time I publish a new book, I think about her briefly and, and somewhere in the world or in another universe. And I hope the news of that book coming out reaches her and she knows that she can in a backhanded way, take credit for encouraging me to publish and to write. Wow! wow. But that was a response. It wasn't, we have a limited budget. It wasn't that this is all the ones we know about. It wasn't that black people don't even write yeah. or read. It was, why don't you write one? Yeah. Uh, which was not very civil and very hurtful for that age. Today, I probably would have said something back just as, as impolite, yeah. but then as a kid, you know, I didn't have, didn't feel any kind of power to respond that way to an adult, and I was shocked that one was responding to me that way, given such an innocent question.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, that, uh, it's kind of shocking from a librarian of all places, is supposed to be some of the safest
1: places in your community,
0: but, but obviously it lost the career of a, one of our most accomplished writers in the state of Kentucky, so thanks to her.
1: This is Read and Succeed, I'm Dave Campbell.
0: One last question on a follow-up on terms of reading. Was there any specific Black author that you found yourself reading, particularly like in your middle school and high school years?
2: Uh, not not as a kid. I mean, it wasn't until probably a sophomore or junior year in high school that I discovered uh, Langston Hughes and, yep. and um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And it, I, didn't, I wasn't blessed with a home that had a library. The house my kids growing up in, There are bookshelves in every room. So they have no excuse about not knowing anything dealing with their own personal history. I may have seen an Ebony magazine. Hmm. Uh, We didn't subscribe, but I may have seen one at somebody else's house or a Jet magazine at the barbershop. To me, I had no idea how rich the history of African American letters was. My mother had been, had dropped out of high school my father had stopped going to school in the eighth grade just before integration. They loved me. They wanted the best for me. They were happy that I was. I liked to read. But they really, really couldn't contribute to my, my education when it came to books. Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. Yeah. But my teachers were invested a lot in me. My librarians, for the most part, were always very helpful. If for no other reason, I was a regular customer. So they had to. But I think that combination of of information coming via schools and, and the drive putting me through my parents, sure. I, I was determined to go on to college. that was not an afterthought before I was even out of high school, I was already thinking about what's next, where in a lot of small towns, high school is the goal yeah you know, to just to, to graduate and then get a factory job or start your life. And, that was
0: never an option for me. One last nice thing on that, in terms of black letters, learning black literature in high school, you know, I can speak. I graduated from high school in 99. I came up in a small town near Danville called Winchester, for those listening. The only African-American letters that I learned or read about in high school were exactly the, the author that Professor X just said. It was Langston Hughes, and we read A Raisin in the Sun. This was a high school curriculum. I mean, it, you know, it was William Faulkner, Mark Twain, Uncle Tom's Cabin. So we were talking about some of the issues related to race relations within the United States, but actually reading a text, reading James Baldwin, reading a whole volume of Langston Hughes. None of that was available in in our high schools at the time. And it really wasn't until within the last couple of years. It started with the Yellow House by Sarah Broom, which was the 2019 National Book Award winner. That was my entryway into learning about black letters and how they all relate. If we can get more exposure to not just the subjects, but the authors who are people of color in high school curriculums, mm-hmm. that would be a huge step forward. Because as Professor X said, those are some of the best letters in American The truly American voice, and I think that it emanated with Twain on the Mississippi, who was in proximity to African-American populations. If you want to hear the American voice in its purest sense, the way that it's written, the lyricism and the style of it, you will find it within African-American letters. And a lot of people don't have access to that nowadays, unfortunately, artistically.
2: Well, and, and I think another thing is very important. If you consider how important Southern writers have been in literature, period. You can't get a degree in English at the college level and not study Southern literature. Uh, But for the longest, Southern literature meant something written by a white man. And occasionally, a Eudero Welty would pop in and have a singular white woman. And all of them could have Black characters. And so people felt like it was complete. And they didn't notice there I'm assuming they didn't notice that that the black voices weren't participating because you get a whole other thing. Because if you go through and you quantify all the black characters in Mark Twain and and Faulkner.
0: Robert P. Warren. I
2: mean, what did those black figures do? In most cases, they were all servant class individuals. There was no wonder we grew up thinking that there was no real black history that there was nothing that we had done of worth because we never read about it in our textbooks. And even the characters, you know, we had to reach all the way back to Othello to even find a, uh, uh, an African-American who was a soldier and, and, and a, a yeah. general of that. But most of the history, I now am proud to share, I didn't learn until I was a collegiate. Yeah. And uh, you know, so that, that tells you something's wrong with the system if you're yeah. leaving people out. Yep. You know, there are whole textbooks being written And they don't tell the whole story. And that's it. If I had not been an English major, I would have been a history major. I I love history. I love reading history and biographies. And so most of my historical poetry or the books that are in persona are all steeped in history. I have, there are actually three York and Lewis and Clark texts. There's one on Isaac Murphy. There's one on Omega Everest. And all those things that are about my historical interests. The one that only hints at history a little bit, but tries to imagine something different than what historians have done, is a third book that probably comes out from UPK in 2022. It was written four years ago, but because of it was purchased by a film company in California, we couldn't publish the book until the film came out. You know, mm. So we were kind of stuck, and we couldn't even talk about it unless it was educational space, which hurt to write a book that then nobody else knew about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they have ways of writing checks to make you forget about that pain that you don't experience usually as a poet. But that third book tries to imagine a story that is not the story that history tells us. History tells us that York, at the end of his life, he was on the way back to Clark to be his slave again because he didn't like being a free man. And that's the story that Clark tells. That's the Clark, that's what Clark said in an interview on his deathbed. Mm. But Clark and historians are the only people who believe that that is true. It's hard to imagine a man like York who experienced a kind of freedom while he was on the expedition because of how Native Americans interacted with him. And then to actually get some freedom 10 years after the expedition to experience that freedom to have been out West for those three years, to say, you know, I'd rather be a slave. Thank you. Uh, It makes it illogical. Uh, So the, the third book imagines York returning to the Northwest to live among the Native Americans. What we do know from Native American history is that when York was with the Nez Perce Indians, he took a bride who was the daughter of one of the chiefs, Chief Red Grizzly, Not only was their courtship detailed in the tribe's oral history then transcribed in the written history, they talk about the fact that York and the chief's daughter had a son. And that son's name was York. They honored York in that way. And even today, when I was doing the research for the York books, I had a chance to have lunch and dinners over the course of two summers in a row with descendants of York with men and women whose children look like my own
1: children wow. and grandkids. Wow.
2: But they didn't tell me, they didn't explain to me why they were as dark as me, or why my hair looked like some of their hair. It wasn't until the third summer when I returned that they told me that everybody I'd had dinner or lunch with were descendants of New York. Wow. They did it on purpose. And they were also testing me to see where my heart was, what my attentions were. And over the course of those tests, my son and I, We went to a sweat lodge with them. We We were the only nine natives at a powwow, special powwow. We were in and out of their homes. We were on their ranches and farms. And after three years, they gave me a copy of the tribe's transcribed histories where it talked about York. From their point of view, and this is something that no textbook, no history book in American history had ever done but they trusted me with it and then asked me to do something with this information. Oh, yeah. So that's the reason the second book, when winter come even exists, it was because of their trust. And I made sure to, to change the point of view. The first book Buffalo dance, the point of view was all York's. It was York speaking and telling the story as he saw it in the second book. There are 12 different speakers and many of the speakers are native Americans a native American shaman, the voice of the river makes an appearance.
0: The River Speaks. I thought that was the best poem. I got goosebumps when I read that.
2: Yeah, that, that's, and it's also the longest poem because water was so important to that expedition. And we also have that made into a, a huge broadside that we used to distribute years ago. I think there are a few around somewhere. In fact, like the Louisville Historical Society has copies of that. You, know, you could probably drop by there and get a free copy. But, you know, those stories are that important because they tell a kind of history And what we know as history, quite often, is one man's point of view. My mother always said that there's one side to every story and then there's the truth. And the truth is the sum total of everybody's point of view. And she even said, we think about a coin, a two-headed coin, but even a coin has an edge. What about the edge of the coin? So a coin has three stories, not two. So that's the mistake we, and generally, whoever wins gets to tell the story and Native Americans were pretty, you know, what I learned during the bicentennial of the expedition is that the story that we were hearing and what we read in textbooks uh, did not include Native American point of view. And it wasn't until I went and spent time with them that I really understand how lopsided the story was and how much they had left out Native Americans' point of view and the significance of that expedition and how, Things have been manipulated, like not unlike today when people spin a story. You can shape it to benefit you. You know, If you're going to tell your version, you're not going to incriminate yourself in most cases. You're going to make you look good in the story and make you look like the winner or the victor. But in the same way people, they don't call the cusser's last stand, it sounds very different when you hear Native Americans talk about it. Sure, sure. And I didn't realize until I'd gone to a conference of Lewis and Clark scholars that I, I deal as simple as Native Americans as horse thieves, how that began. And they told me a story about how in the, in the Lewis and Clark journals that there were five people who kept notes every night and you could find five of those journals. And you, there's a specific date where they talk about horses because I needed over 40 horses to carry all of their equipment over the mountains. And mind you, you need to also understand that it wasn't just Lewis and Clark. There were 42 people in the expedition. Well, we hear about Lewis and Clark. They're superheroes, especially when you think they did it all by themselves. But the truth is they did very little of it other than lead and make decisions. Everybody else did all the work. York did more work than anybody because he was enslaved at the time. But they needed over 40 horses to get over the mountains carrying their supplies after they exhausted rivers. This is the great Rocky Mountains. But they didn't, if you look in the manifest from when they left east and headed through Kentucky to pick up nine Kentucky boys in York, they didn't have any horses. If you go through the journals and just try to find a place where they encounter horses, what it says in everybody's notes is that, here's an example, I'm gonna paraphrase. Today was a good day. We discovered 12 horses in the field alone, ironically, already broken, some with marks. They weren't wild horses. They were just tame horses with markings. And because they were not in a corral or not in the fence, they considered them to be free horses. So they kept discovering horses until they had over 40 horses to carry their stuff. What they don't say is that they were discovering these horses from the Sioux, from the mm, Teton yeah, Sioux yeah. specifically, mm-hmm. yeah. right? That's why they had markings. And the way Sioux trained their horses, when they needed them, they would just call them, and the horses would come running. Then when they didn't need them, they would let them go, and they grazed on their own. There were no fences. that limited where they could roam. But they always stayed close to the tribe until they needed them. The Teton Sioux at one point came and stowed some horses back, according mm. to Lewis and Clark. But is it stealing if it's your property originally? But in the journal, the Teton Sioux are called not just horse thieves, but the worst miscreants on the face of the earth. They are described in such a horrible way that it leaves no room because all five journals say the same thing. Like they sat down and say, well, how are we going to describe this? And they copied everybody's comments word for word. And this was before movies came out. And by the time filmmaking became vogue, they were presenting Native Americans in this new stereotype as horse thieves. And then, you know, when I was a kid, as early as the 60s, not only was it about trying to scap prairie individuals, it was about stealing horses. And not only is that lopsided, it's almost like a reverse story, because most of the scalping happened when Americans were cutting the scalps and hair of natives for bounty and selling them. So all that history is twisted and became, because only one side of the story is being told by one participant in the story, we grew up with these ideas that infected our, or influenced, depending on how you think about it, our films, our cartoons, our children's stories and became these stereotypes and caricatures that are still alive today in a lot of cases. People, even with the COVID-19 pandemic, most people have never seen a news account that talks about how horrific its impact has been on reservations and among Native people. Mm. Uh, And why that's not on the front page is beyond me because even though it affects people of color more adversely than people who don't have that melanin yeah. uh, presence in their bodies, it affects Native Americans even worse.
1: Really?
0: Okay. You, you haven't heard anything about that. on? But it a, never a, makes the news. Yeah. Unless
2: you're reading Native American news or you're in touch with people in those spaces, like I am. But that's typical. Same thing about you don't hear what happens in prisons. We weren't hearing about things that were happening in nursing homes for the longest, but people were down in nursing homes from the very beginning, large numbers, until somebody broke the story. Yeah. And then the same thing in prisons because of that kind of closed population until somebody broke the story, but they weren't gonna release the story because it made them look bad. So history is just one person's point of view. And once you call it history, it don't make it true. And so when I reached back to Daniel Cameron saying, this is the truth, you know, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders because I knew what he was saying was, this is a story this is a narrative we've crafted and the one I'm telling you. It's not necessarily the truth. He's calling it the truth, but it don't make it true. We'll know the truth. Hopefully, we'll be close to the truth when the FBI completes their version of
0: it. Yeah. Well, even then, I mean, that's just going to be their interpretation of the truth. Exactly. I mean, there's multiple. And, and, and back to like the things that we're talking about, it takes it takes artists like Professor X, for those listening to this show, you can get a different take on the truth of the Lewis and Clark expeditions. We all love the journals. We all love reading them. They're magic. Reading, you, you, yeah. I mean, once once you get into them, uh, they did. It was, there was an event at the Felson Club right before the pandemic hit, and the guy that translated the journals, I can't remember his name. The professor, he was University of Nebraska professor, came out and spoke at the Felson Club in February. Wow. Oh no, I'm sorry. No, it was um, last uh, last October. I'm sorry. He was the University of Nebraska when I was in Omaha. But even he said he's like you. He goes, you read the journals, and he says they just take you on the expedition with them. But as Professor X is saying, there is other truths that are at work there.
1: This is Read and Succeed, I'm Dave Campbell. So
0: Buffalo Dance, when I was doing my critical analysis of it as I read through them, I, and I, I broke it down, I tried to make these distinctions and then, you know, philosophy and, and literary criticism the art of making distinctions, I think. And I said, you know, Buffalo Dance was intrinsically personal. It felt to me as was York's personal journey of going on the expedition, and then the return and then the freedom that the expedition had given him and his decisions It's like, I'm not going to return to the internal way I had viewed myself before this expedition. There was some other narratives in there, but that was fundamentally around York's persona. When winter come, I said it was less personal, it was more social. Social in a sense, it had a, a social element with the inclusion of Sacagawea, now speaking, the inclusion of Clark now speaking. And in the earth itself speaking at times with the river speaks i definitely felt that york's connection to the earth it was kindred with the native americans him and Sacagawea had an ancient relationship that existed before america began like i could feel i just got goosebumps as i said that but i could feel that and i i, I want to bring this back to your identification as an afro an african-american also from appalachia i grew up in winchester Growing up, I was delivering vending machines out to the country stores that were in Powell County, even as far away as Pikeville. Mm-hmm. I, I don't claim Appalachian status entirely, but I, I grew up in proximity to it. And their relationship, I, I don't like saying their, appalachians has a very ancient relationship to the earth. Very different perspective than you probably would find in, in Lexington, probably a very different perspective than you than you would find in Louisville or anywhere else for that matter. I just wanted to bring back how, you know, you moved into When Winter Come and you began to have these very intimate relationships with indigenous peoples, with the Nez Perce. You were given permission to enter into deeper and deeper levels of their oral histories, which, which your heart was being tested around their campfires in so, their sweat lodges, so to speak. So the Arab world, they have similar processes to you have to sit around a lot of dinners with them before they will let you deeper and deeper into their world. How much of York's relationship with the earth do you feel is reflected in your identification as an afro
2: agent within the poetry? I would say there's some for sure. Because for me, let me go back to York. One of the things that I realized, I had written what I thought was a complete book before I made my first trip to the reservation uh, in Idaho. So you,
0: you thought Buffalo Dance was a finished canon?
2: I thought it was, well, I thought it was done. Wow. I, I thought my version of it, you know, everything I'd written, just needed to be blessed and put it on a hard cover and, and sit on into the world. But, you know, after, you know, if you've never been out West, and I know a lot of, hopefully everybody listening is, is well-traveled, but for me, and I got to watch it happen because I've traveled more than my son at the time. He was, these three summers consecutive were, he turned 12, 13, and 14. So it was kind of his rites of passage. So I studied him and wondered about where I was at the same age and what my experience was like. You know, I had I was almost 20 years old before I was on my first plane before I made my first trip out mm-hmm. of the state. So I come out of a a small social group that wasn't well traveled, and so there was there was a lot of what I experienced in the Northwest that I imagined York experienced because he had not seen these things either. And he grew up in a space that people didn't talk about the Northern Lights. They didn't talk about whales. They didn't talk about 100,000 buffalo at once uh, or waterfalls bigger than Niagara. All these amazing visual landscape views that existed between you know, the Mississippi River and the Pacific Ocean. So every time I saw something that just maybe just open my mouth and go, wow. And understanding that this was 200 plus years later for me, I tried to imagine, what was it like for York, for a manservant to see his first whale? And before that, the biggest fish you'd ever seen was a catfish and now there's a whale. Or to hear a waterfall like 10 miles away and it get louder and louder and louder and you finally get there and you see it and it's your first ever waterfall. And there are no rails to keep you from falling over the edge. And it's just natural wonder. Or to, to go to sleep at night outdoors and look up and the stars seem like they're less than a mile above you because the sky is so big. After making that first trip and being awed by the landscape, mm. I rewrote almost half the poems in the book because I realized that the landscape was a main character.
0: Wow. There's
2: no way that, you could exp- that York experienced that without acknowledging how important, how powerful that experience was. And the more time I spent with the Native Americans and realized that much of what they do is still outdoors. You know, I went to a graduation, a high school graduation celebration, that really was, you know, around a campfire in the backyards in quote unquote suburbs on the reservation, but it was a campfire. And the the sweat lodge we went to that was built out of all natural Items and, and next to the river was not like going into a sauna in a hotel. Yeah. yeah. It, wasn't <laughs> I mean, an it was an urban experience. Yeah, It was a real authentic. It was the way they had done it for centuries. Yeah, um, yeah. And to be in that space, I knew that, that I wasn't making a film. So I had to find some way of bringing that experience forward for the reader to make sure they understood that. We aren't just outdoors, we are with the outdoors in this space once he got that fire into the wilderness. And in the second book, the reason I animated the rivers, plural, because it was in response to understanding how important the outdoors was in, in, the, in this particular story. Yeah. These men spent most of their time outdoors, unless they spent, they built some shelter for the winter. They were outdoors every two night. Two
0: years, two years. Uh, that's hard to understand we there's no comparable experience nowadays of being being they were out there for two years
2: you know we we go on vacations and we you might camp for a week or weekend but i don't know anybody who spent that kind of time outdoors you know maybe the arctic explorers of old but the new ones they have the equivalent winnebago's out there and all the modern conveniences they're not dealing with the elements sleeping close together because a bear or a wolf or something might drag them off. Yeah, um, yeah. It's amazing.
0: Have... I've always said it's amazing other than Floyd who died of an appendicitis and even the best medicine in Philadelphia at the time, he probably would have died anyway. Mm-hmm. I always said it's amazing in the Lewis and Clark expedition that they even survived all of them. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Given the condition, I mean, two years, just the elements themselves, you take the wild animals and disease accidents. It's It's absolutely amazing.
2: And the Lewis and Clark version of that, because it's such an amazing thing to have survived, they do seem like heroes, because they don't talk about the degree to which Native Americans saved their lives. I mean, they would have starved to death at least four times because they ran out of food. They were eating dogs (laughs) and horses. Uh, I visited a town, I forget the name of the town, but they sold bumper stickers. I said, doggone, Lewis and Clark was here. And it was a joke because that's the town and the tribe, Lewis and Clark, came and bought all the dogs they could find. And they ate them. <laughs> and Lewis and Clark don't tell that story. No. Nope. Uh, but that's the reality. They didn't know what to eat. Sacagawea was instrumental because once she got to the terrain near where she grew up and she recognized everything, she also pointed out roots that could be eaten. They were...
0: They would have perished without Sacagawea. They would have, they they would have, have perished. perished.
2: And, and these were... And the irony is that they were buying dogs from people who ate fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of eating that much salmon because the fish was available, but they preferred the dog because you know, these are meat eaters. You know, this was old school American man, it's meat and potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they could have survived on fish if they knew how to catch them. But Native Americans in the traditional version of Lewis and Clark, they almost disappeared they would not have even made it all the way there. They wouldn't survive this, the first or second winter without Native Americans. Yep,
0: yep.
1: Uh, but you
2: never hear that story. Yep. This is Read and Succeed.
1: I'm Dave Campbell. The,
0: the, you're talking about the different characterizations within the poems. And I, 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 it definitely came out in When Winter Come. And again, these were just my distinctions I made as I was doing my, my own analysis of it. And I said, poetry about Clark or by Clark. Very much represents, it's it's sort of the embodiment of of white America, which Clark very much was. And even the Lewis and Clark translator at um, the Filson Club when I went there last October, he said exactly both of the things that you said. He said, you know what, Clark was a great captain. He was a a hero of the expedition. But he said, go up to Locust Grove and look at his record. And he was also a slaveholder. He was both. These things exist together and we cannot remove the two. Sacagawea represents within the poetry, poetry about her and by her represents a deep indigenous relationship with the earth. The earth itself is a characterization in this. And then York, he's basically narrativizing his relationship with all the above. But then you had one poem about Lewis, who never actually had his own poem, but it was a poem that York wrote about Lewis, and this was published in 2008, and the title of the poem was Queer Behavior. Uh-huh. And because it's copyrighted material, I cannot read it out on Read and Succeed. Meriwether Lewis, Captain Meriwether Lewis, who was official, you know, even though Clark and Lewis were co-captains, everyone looked to Lewis. Lewis was the one that Thomas Jefferson assigned to lead the expedition. Within five years of returning, Lewis uh, was deeply in debt. His life basically became unraveled. He was a deeply, deeply troubled man. And in 1809, he committed suicide on the Natchez Trace. And I've actually been to that place. There's rumors about, you know, maybe there were some deaths outstanding and whether or not it is. But if you, if you read the journals and you look at the way that Clark speaks, his voice that comes through the way he writes, and then you listen to Lewis and the way that he speaks, Clark comes across as exactly what you would expect of, you know, kind of macho, red-blooded American. Lewis The first time I read it, and this was, I I came to this conclusion before I even read When Winter Come, almost like a um, Walt Whitman sort of figure. His uh, lofty ideals about nature, he's a deeply sensitive man. And within the poem, Queer Behavior is, York is observing Lewis and Clark together, and the relationship that they have with the men on the expedition, the relationship that they have with some of the sexual liberties that the men took with some of the Native American tribes on the expedition. You know, these are some of the realities that exist with the Native American culture at the time. Sexual hospitality. It also exists within some Middle Eastern communities. It's not for us to, to apply a Western morality to those situations. Lewis himself openly in the journals never indulged in any of these things. He, he seemed to be laden with something. And when you wrote the poem, it, it, you alluded to potentially it was not heteronormative in that poem. I thought that poem was brilliant. And Gutsy in 2008. I thought it was spot on. And Lewis is not around to speak for himself. If this was Lewis's reality, you know, I, I've had this conversation when I was trying to dissect Melville on our first episode of Read and Succeed. There's some letters that come out that Melville potentially was a bisexual. They, you know, that he had a very uh, obsessive relationship with Hawthorne. Even then, these individuals in the 19th century probably did not even think about these things in the same terms that they would do now in modern 21st century LGBT movements. But what motivated you to write that poem? Because I thought that was absolutely artistically brilliant that you did that, and gutsy that in that proximity to the bicentennial.
2: Well, for me, it, I was trying to to honor the research. When I was trying to do a character analysis of key individuals. I paid a lot of attention to how other people responded to them. And that information, if you look at, if you read more than one journal, I bought all of them. I had three years of total research. I made seven consecutive trips on the weekend to St. Louis Mm. um, to the Westford Expansion Museum, which houses the largest Lewis and Clark paraphernalia collection in the world, and almost a bookstore full of books about everything connected, you know, the food, the plants, the medicine.
0: Totally Martian.
2: Every time I would go, I would spend over my budget in books and all I could carry and the videos. But the more I read, there was an image and picture of Lewis that was the first it, it was coming across like he was just a dandy. And just you know, that it was a, a class thing, and he was above these rough frontier men. Like you mentioned, the the red-blooded, I want my meat rare, yep. uh, Clark kind of assessment. Yep. But he was a, above all the, And And the closer I read, I started asking questions, and everything added up. To, at the very least, because, you know, I didn't go so far as to make a decision about his sexuality. But at the very least, I can say that his behavior in the space, in this company of individuals, was very queer compared to everybody else. And so it was easy to imagine, because I played football, I played organized sports. I was teased relentlessly in high school because I would be in in my locker reading a book. (laughs)
1: Mm, mm, Um, yeah
2: and
0: a lot of football players are known for their rich sitting around (laughs) you know so here
2: here, here are the most you know red-blooded males in a high school environment yeah you know who made decisions about my sexuality and were comfortable feminizing me for just reading yep in spite of everything i did with them on the field, and, and the level of, of my accomplishment, you know. Wow. Uh, playing, I never left the field. I played both ways, started for four years. Yeah. Uh, so they couldn't question that, but the thing that was different made me queer to them. Hmm. Uh, and so there were so many things I kept coming across that distanced him from everybody else in those spaces. You know, yep. this choice to not participate with the free women that were made available. Clark said he didn't either. and historians say He didn't either, but he was the only redhead in the crew, and there was a whole trail of redheads nine months later. <laughs> <whatever they went.
1: laughs> yeah, yeah, uh,
2: so he explained that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, everything down to his foods, his behavior, his dress, his, his mannerisms, the teasing. They talked about teasing. Yep. Uh, and him not getting along and the kind of duties they both chose to to take over and be responsible for all of that pointed to something that said he's very different from everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I was comfortable going that far. And there's a whole book. Or maybe there might be two by now that goes further than I ever did that I had access to, but I thought, you know, they were, they didn't have as much information that I believe they had, but they felt comfortable because it was sensational at the time that book came out that went ahead and labeled him as a homosexual and suggested that he killed himself because of failed relationships and his inability to to have a successful one coming to public knowledge. But I didn't want to write about any of that because much of that was secondhand. The things that made sense to me were when people weren't trying to describe his sexuality, were just trying to describe him. And the differences just, just kept stacking up.
0: His side of the journals begged that question. And Professor Nex and I are saying this respectfully, and we're using the, the word queer respectfully. He was a man apart from, definitely from Clark. Mm-hmm. Not just with this, his voice within the journals, but then the reality of what happened to him after the expedition. He had a problem in his life, not a problem. He, he could not find a solution to something. And, and what that is, you know, obviously only Lewis himself knew. But I wondered that as well before I ever read One Winter Come and when I read that, I said there's somebody else in the world who thinks this, like Stephen Ambrose never said anything about that.
2: No, you know, and the... I respect all of Ambrose's work. But I, and I think the thing is, you know, some of those historians have suggested that I would not go so far to say that his sexuality was why he killed himself. I would say that because he lived in a world where his What's... choice was so unaccepted that choosing not to be himself would be enough to kill himself, that he couldn't live and be himself and be free. You know, so the idea of York seeing this man's life and say
0: related to it. something
2: about being a slave
0: Yeah, yeah he related yeah. to it.
2: That this makes sense to me. so it's very possible and I would love to, to make this movie and have them you know have that acknowledgement happen that that for them too. There's a kind of understanding that only they recognize because they recognize what it means to be in the space where you can't experience that, the freedom to be who you are, who you truly are, and to have to make yourself into somebody else. Like York made himself smaller, so he wasn't intimidating. He made himself less smart, made it appear less smart, so that he would not intimidate them intellectually even. I mean, That makes sense mm. in, that, in that kind of space. And when you consider there are all kinds of masculinity studies and we're talking about frontier masculinity which this is about probably not that different from neanderthal masculinity yeah, it yeah, yeah. was not an advanced idea it was yeah. not even about anything intellectually it was about your ability to kill your physical strength yep and how you treated women and in that day and time it had to be in a misogynistic way or you were less than a man if you didn't want to beat around or swing on a woman and some of that stuff York gets criticized for some of those ideas by his stepmother yeah. uh, in the second book because he adopts some of those ideas about how to treat women, which she refused to accept as part of their community. And it's rare that I get to have this conversation because people, some people read the book only at one level, but there's so much stuff there. You know, I had enough time, there's so much research and there's so many things, and there's so many layers in all the poems.
0: That, that was right at the end. I, I can remember how you know, York had changed with his relationship to himself and the freedom that he d- desired. But then there were also reflections from those, like the, the, those images of him sitting on the porch telling the stories from the expedition and everybody standing around and the black women in his life being like, this guy's got a sense of himself now that's rising above. Right. Yeah, he's treating yeah. us differently now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Where's his humility? And for me... Even if it wasn't true, I understood that because I remember going to college and then coming back home among my peers and being accused of talking different, of acting different, of being above, you know, it's like, you think you better than us now
1: because
2: mm-hmm. you've been to college. I mean, you you better than us now because you've been to, to the other ocean. You've been on the expedition. Yep. So I think it's a natural thing. You know, there's that whole crab mentality, especially if you live among the people who are marginalized as a group already and one person has an experience outside that group context. So a lot of what you experienced in the book were things that for me, I tried to like draw a connection to in my own world. Yeah. Uh, so there wasn't I me. Mean, I don't perceive a lot of difference or a lot of distance in the emotional or psychological space. I had a journey to to understand York in that particular position versus right from the point of view of a, of a river from Clark from uh, Lewis a jacket or a knife from, Aguilera, from a hunting shirt from a yeah. knife from a gun. That's hard work for me. <laughs> the other wasn't as hard. It was easy because I had the emotional research already in my core that I could reach and dig into. I thought that
0: when you spoke from Clark's perspective, and I speak as a white man, particularly like that last poem on When Winter Come, where you said, you know, it, Clark was talking about how much York's leaving and getting, you know, getting caught up in his own sense of blackness. Clark was saying, well, it just kills me that he had to do this to me. And th- that's a very, very white mentality. And like you said, it was work, but that was executed brilliantly. Like that's, I'm I'm not painting all of white, white America offices, things like that, but they're the, the uh, emotional, intellectual risk of falling in. You know, I was just so nice that I did so much for everybody. And then everybody gets mad at me. You know, they just, it just hurts me. You mm-hmm. know, it's, you, you're, you're completely unable to even think about, okay, systematically, what am I doing to hurt anybody else? And I, I, I thought, I was like, that was incredible. It,
2: it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about the, the transactional nature of justice, I understand the perception of it in white America. Versus how it might appear in black America. And for Clark, it was like, you know, I was good to you. You know, you, I gave you clothes. You got to eat the same food I ate. I'm going for you one day. But refused to understand why he was angry. Yep. And the idea that York would rather be in Kentucky with his wife and not with him. <laughs> yeah. That he didn't have the empathy to understand that. Well, even like, I,
0: and I don't like, I don't like Read Succeed becoming a political show for the listeners, but Bob Woodward's book, Rage, just came out. I have not read it, but I was reading reviews of it, and they were saying that as Woodward was bringing up what uh, Barbara Truckman was, a historian, talked about the clock of history and how the clock of history sets on certain eras. She was writing about World War I as the clock of history was setting on monarchy as the ruler of Europe. It was going to move into full-blown nationalism and all the issues that went with that, which included world wars. And Woodward kept bringing up Truckman in the sense of the era of white privilege and white supremacy. The clock within American history is setting on this. And Woodward even said to Trump, he says, I myself have benefited from white privilege. My entire career only existed because of the privileges that I have as a white individual. And he was trying to draw Trump into feeling and empathy in these issues, and Trump responded exactly like Clark did in that poem with a list of defensive accomplishments. I have not read it, but the reviewer was saying he was like the only thing that the president could say was is this kind of like look, I the, the, you know talk about employment rates and you know all these things that that we have done. And I, I'm not it. I'm speaking in judgmental terms, but also non-judgmental terms. I'm, we're looking here as as literary analysts, and the words that are being said. And what we feel as people who devote our life to letters means it was exactly that same mentality. It's like, it, it hurts me that I even have to be asked about these things. It kills me. Like that, that, that line from when Clark said that in the, in the book, I was like, wow, that's just nailed it. And, he, and I even read that out loud to myself to master. I even read it out loud with a Virginia accent in the privacy of my home to get that poem deep within my being. Which I think you have to do with poetry sometimes, and
2: the, yeah. it's, it's it's meant to be oral. Well, you know, I think the uh, I bought the book and, and I haven't finished it, but rage, rage, and one of the key thing Trump says in that space is you drank the Kool Aid.
0: Yep, I saw that from the in the, and, in the well, review.
2: what he, what he's trying to say really points to something that we come to know about him is that he really doesn't believe that. African American people, people of color period, have contributed anything positive or worthwhile to what he understands as America, that he has this idea of America at this base in a very singular way and a very closed-minded way because he's not a reader. Yeah. Right, so he's not read any African American literature or other people's histories of the world, you know. Yeah. He's probably consumed every high school or middle school size version of history. And we know, you know how, how patriarchal that is, how one-sided that is. And that's enough history for him. And so he, he doesn't have to, he's got degrees. He doesn't have to read another book again in his life. Yeah. But I think that's his weakness. That's one of the things he hated about the president before him is that he was literate to that degree that he loved books, that when he talked, you could hear books on his tongue. What you don't hear and what you do hear from this president, it has everything to do with his level of literacy. Yeah, and yeah his relationship with, to books. Yep. And what he does know and doesn't know is, unfortunately for us, impacts his actions, but makes him a much smaller man because his worldview, his access to the world as a space with ideas and history and relationships is small. I mean, I dare say it doesn't extend beyond high school. If you, te- if you could test him, it, wouldn't, it might not go past high school. And
0: it, it, for those last things, reading is an arduous task. I, I equate it. I run. I train for triathlons. As I became a true reader, and if anybody listens to episode one of Read and Succeed, I can start. I could talk about my reading journey began in the middle of a war. It is marginal gains. It's a lot. Of, you have to discipline yourself for it. But once you realize that the benefits of an expanded intellect are paying off in your life and in your actions, in your relationships with other people, and not just academic success. I mean, in the quality of your life of your mind, you can see those benefits. And I, we're not, we're we're sitting there saying this that we wish that the president had deeper reading habits and and a, in a yes. more because it would be for for him as a leader for him as a human being
2: there's it's, so much there's so much he could learn that would be useful in the job he currently has yeah. and i i mean what job have you ever taken in the world that didn't require you to read more to do it in yeah. the best way possible yeah. and The most important job in the world has to be, you know, leader of the free world. Largest country in the world.
1: Yeah.
2: Most powerful country in the world. I mean, there's so much. And to shrink your world to tweets.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: He'd rather read a tweet. It seems like he's the kind of person who would depend on news from a tweet or from the social media versus reading a newspaper from cover to cover. If he did that, if he read several newspapers from several points of view, or watched multiple news shows, but he gets his news from one source yep. and he gets it in sound bites, and that becomes his worldview and his reality, and that affects everything, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Uh, but I, you know, a program about reading is all about that. I mean, and people understand how. How books just expand your mind, period. Yep. You know, you, if, if it made you, if you, read, if you read a book, every time you read a book, you were an inch taller.
1: Yep. Right?
2: There, we'd be, we would have a, a world full of giants and a world full of people who were height challenged because they hate reading. Yep. And they don't find it enlightening or life changing or cathartic. And there are people who are, I think, emotionally repressed because they haven't been opened up like books can do for you yeah you know, there's some movies that can do that there's some plays the art, great like art can do that right
0: not yet yeah, not like a book can
2: but not you not know like a book can in you know, my best my best compliment about a film is like wow it was almost as good as the book that's best I can do for you for wow. a film yep. uh, but it's a different piece of art and it's not it's really the whole story they're, they're gonna leave out something they're gonna tell what they think is the most important part of this story that they read, this big story, chop it down to two hours exactly and spin it out. But yeah, you know, reading, it's a literacy issue. When I visit prisons, I can always tell just from the comments because it never forms into a question from the audience, who's been reading? And you can see those young men and women, because I've been to women's prisons, who have had their intellectual light, well, come on. And they're so alive, they don't even feel like they're in prison anymore yep. because their new world is in books and they're reading everything. And they're trying to ask a question, but their mind is going a, mile, you know, a million miles an hour. And I can, even, I can tell by the way they ask the question how bright their eyes are, how excited they are. And at the end, I, I always say that I'm not sure if that was a question, but... <laughs> it they, you, know,
0: you saw the space open yes it's
2: yeah, just, yeah. it just it's like there's a there's a universe that they discovered and it's limitless but if you don't read
1: it, yeah
0: it, it stays closed it stays closed well one last question is we're talking about books and i'll, and I'll get you out of search, but It's been a great honor speaking to you but uh, any books on art any projects or books or art that, that you're working on now that we should look forward to in the future
2: absolutely uh mid-october I have a book that comes out called Mask, Men, Black. Pandemic and Protest Poems. And it's all about now in America. I started writing April 1. I was trying to write a poem a day. And I decided to just write just about COVID-19 and the pandemic and its effect on my life and, and everything I was consuming. And I couldn't stop. So deep into the summer, I was still writing a poem a day. And by then... The protests were happening, so I just folded that into the conversation. So this whole book of poems is about everything we've been living through the last six months. Which, as we, every week, I get a new news story that says it's actually been longer than that. I read something that said that COVID's actually been in America since December of last year. People were dying of it and didn't know what it yeah. was. Yet. Yeah. Um, you know, so. Yeah, look for that book. I'm real proud of it. It's about right now. Every time I thought I was finished, something else would happen in the news and I had to go back and write another poem and then turn in and pull it back because things kept happening. And I'm contemplating writing something about this response from the grand jury, but Mm. it's already at the printers. (laughs) So my publisher would not be very happy with me to say, I need another page in the book. But but other than that, there's nothing that's happening right now in the world. You know, teaching remotely from home, trying to finish books. I have a new children's book coming out next year, my first children's book. Uh, A, as in Afrolatchia. I finished my first novel that I don't know when it will come out, but I know it's being read by publishers in New York right now. And so I have my fingers crossed, waiting for some news. So I started, made a decision to shot at the top because it's, it's not poetry, it's fiction. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, I'm pretty comfortable at the bottom. So the book will fall somewhere between the top and the bottom. But I'm real proud of it. You know, it's, it's set in Kentucky. At the heart of it is a young man who is a writer, imagine that, and reader. And the people who, who mentor him are readers We'll see what
0: happens with it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today was Dr. Frank X. Walker. The text that we reviewed on Read and Succeed, were Buffalo Dance, The Journey of York, and When Winter Come, The Ascension of York the both collections of poetry. They were published by the University of Press of Kentucky in 2004 and 2008, respectively. And Professor X., we're going to give you the last word on Read and Succeed today for the community in Louisville, Kentucky, and the nation.
2: I'll say that Buffalo Dance and When Winter Come will be re-released with new material, along with the third book in 2022. And my answer to everything connected to reading and writing has always been read. Read.
0: Dr. Frank X. Walker, Affiliation Poet and 26 Poet Laureate of Kentucky.
1: This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
0: That's it for this episode of Read and Succeed. Join us next episode and we'll pick back up with a previously scheduled 2016 Pulitzer Prize winner for nonfiction, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. I'm Matthew Desmond. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.